Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Thanks for joining us here on the Then and Now podcast where we study the Bible and history from a full preterist perspective. Last time we looked at the efforts of Josephus to fortify and defend Galilee, the spring and summer campaign of Vespasian in Galilee, and especially his assault on Jotapata, where Josephus was defeated and captured. We read some quotes out of Yosipon about the Battle of Jotapata and gave some references to the accounts of it in Josephus and Hegesippus. This time, we will continue looking at the chronology of the war, including the mop-up operations of Vespasian in Galilee and the subjugation of all the other areas outside Jerusalem, including the Decapolis, Perea, Samaria, Idumea, Jericho, and the remainder of Judea, which was outside of Jerusalem. Before getting into that study, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the only true God of this infinite universe, the holiest of all holies, King of kings and Lord of all lords, the sovereign of all the ages, we ask for your blessings upon our studies and fellowship here. May we apply these truths to our lives in such a way that it not only strengthens us spiritually, but also equips us to teach others and build your kingdom so that Many will be blessed and bring glory and honor to you and your Son, who redeemed us with his blood. It is in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen. In the lesson outline, we have a summary of the events that we looked at in last session, and we won't go through those. They're here in the outline for you if you would like to review them before we get started on this session. I found the comments of Gary Goldberg on his Josephus.org website to be a very good summary of the work of Josephus to unite the Galileans under his command and organize their defenses for the war against Vespasian. Here's what Gary Goldberg had to say about Josephus. When Josephus was made commander of Galilee, he was thrust into a complex and brutal power struggle with the local politicians ambitious businessmen, factional supporters, and gangs of guerrillas. For a man 30 years old with no apparent leadership experience, his actions in Galilee were remarkable, fortifying key defensive points while staving off a series of attempts by his Galilean political opponents to murder him. These actions are all the more amazing in that he did not have the unequivocal support of the leaders of Jerusalem, who recalled him after a few months and ordered that he be taken from Galilee dead or alive. Yet somehow Josephus was able to make himself popular with the people of Jerusalem and most powerfully the ones he simply calls the Galileans who supported him against the aristocracy and the wealthy middle class of the upper cities. Such is his story, and there is nothing more controversial in Josephus' studies than his actions in Galilee. 
Is his account an objective rendering of the facts? Or was it filled with tenditious statements, a plea to protect himself after the war from accusations of betraying, on the one hand, his country, and on the other, the Roman Empire? Well, that's, I think, a very good summary of what's involved here in this story about Josephus being defeated there at Jadapada. And we discussed that a little bit last time, and we're not going to go through that this time, but I wanted to kind of keep that in mind because it is this same Josephus that's telling us the story about the rest of the war. And we need to keep in mind that he may, in fact, have some ulterior motives in mind uh, as he tells this story. After Vespasian overwhelmed Jadapada and took Josephus captive, he turned his attention toward the remaining pockets of resistance in Galilee and all other places outside of Jerusalem. And I have a map here in the lesson outline, uh, which is borrowed from the Josephus.org website, which shows the various campaigns of Vespasian in 67 AD there in Galilee. And you want to look at those and get kind of a feel for where those cities were located and which ones were attacked by Vespasian in his ongoing campaign to subjugate all of Galilee. And in October of 67, Vespasian moved his forces up to Gamala, which is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very strategic city near the border of Agrippa's kingdom in Lower Golanitis. Gamala was originally put under the command of Josephus, which he helped fortify, but not long afterwards they backed away from him and decided to run their own show. But neither did they ally themselves with Agrippa. They trusted in their strong fortress to pull them through. And they did, in fact, have a very strong fortress, probably stronger than Jadapada was, but uh, it was not able to withstand the overwhelming assault of Vespasian. Vespasian was able to storm it with his troops and overpower it on the 23rd day of Hyperberetus, which was in October, I believe, of 67 A.D. Well, that uh, just about sewed up the east side of Galilee. The only city that was left remaining in Galilee with any kind of a resistance there was Giscala up in the far northwest corner of Galilee. It was the last of the Galilean fortresses to surrender. Vespasian sent Titus against them with a thousand horsemen, while Vespasian sent the 10th legion to Scythopolis, and he returned to Caesarea with the other two legions. Titus challenged John's men on the walls of Giscala to give up the fight and surrender peacefully. The citizens below the wall wanted to surrender, but John of Giscala's soldiers on the wall prevented them from having any say in the matter. John asked Titus for a cease of fighting until after the Sabbath, while he was secretly planning to escape out of the city that night after uh, everyone was asleep. Titus granted the request, and John was able to slip out of there with his soldiers that night and flee toward Jerusalem. 
The next day, the citizens of the town opened the gates for the Romans and surrendered peacefully. When Titus heard that John had escaped in the night, he sent some of his horsemen to pursue them, but they were already too far ahead to catch up with. John's soldiers had removed 9,000 of their fellow citizens and families with them, but they could not keep pace with John and his soldiers, so they got left behind. When the Romans caught up with them, they slew over 6,000 of them and brought the other 3,000 of them back to Giscala. Titus left a garrison of soldiers there in Giscala to prevent any further disturbances. Thus, all of Galilee was taken under the control of Vespasian's forces. Titus took the rest of his soldiers to Caesarea. Well, the next month, Vespasian took some of the troops from Caesarea and went to Jamnia and Azotus, which is down in the south along the coast. And he took both of those cities uh, by storm and captured them and put them under garrisons to control them. And then he took a bunch of captives back to Caesarea from those cities. Uh, Next month, in January of 68, Vespasian wintered his two legions there in Caesarea and the other one at Scythopolis while he and his military advisors planned their spring campaign. Titus joined his father there in Caesarea. Well, in the spring of March of 68, Vespasian marched against Gadara, which is in Perea, not too far from Judea, just across the Jordan River from uh, Jericho and some of those other Judean cities there. Gadara welcomed him, but the zealots inside fled the city and went to nearby Bethanabras. Vespasian then left a bunch of his troops with Placidus, who would then go and take care of those fugitives who fled to Bethanabras. Meanwhile, Vespasian returned to Caesarea with the main part of the army. Placidus, with a detachment of 500 horsemen and 3,000 footmen, engaged the rebels there in Bethanabras. The Romans lured them out of the city and then surrounded them. They tried to get back into the city, but Placidus and his men were right behind them. So the gates of the city were shut against their own people. Here's how Josephus described this. For as they were crowding together at the wall, the Roman horsemen were just ready to fall in on them. However, the guards prevented them and shut the gates. When Placidus made an assault upon them... And fighting courageously till it was dark, he got possession of the wall and of the people that were in the city. When the useless multitude were destroyed, those that were more potent ran away, and the soldiers plundered the houses and set the village on fire. As for those that ran out of the village, they stirred up such as were in the country, and exaggerating their own calamities, and telling them that the whole army of the Romans were upon them, they put them into great fear on every side, so that they got in great numbers together and fled to Jericho. 
for they knew no other place that could afford them any hope of escaping, it being a city that had a strong wall and a great multitude of inhabitants. But Placidus, relying much upon his horsemen and his former good success, followed them and slew all that he overtook as far as the Jordan. And when he had driven the whole multitude to the riverside, where they were stopped by the current, for it had been augmented lately by rains and was not fordable, he put his soldiers in array over against them. So the necessity the others were in provoked them to hazard a battle, because there was no place whither they could flee. They then extended themselves a very great way along the banks of the river, and sustained the darts that were thrown at them, as well as the attacks of the horsemen who beat many of them, and pushed them into the current, at which fight, hand to hand, fifteen thousand of them were slain, while the number of those that were unwillingly forced to leap into Jordan was prodigious. There were besides two thousand and two hundred taken prisoners. A mighty prey was also taken, consisting of asses and sheep and camels and oxen. Now this destruction that fell upon the Jews, as it was not inferior to any of the rest in itself, so did it still appear greater than it really was, and this because not only the whole country through which they had fled was filled with slaughter, and Jordan could not be passed over by reason of the dead bodies that were in it, but also because the lake Asphaltus was also full of dead bodies that were carried down into it by the river. Now that's an amazing story there, and again, it sounds like some of the things that we read in the book of Revelation, and that's why I wanted to read this account here in Josephus. Uh, where he talks about the whole of the country through which they had fled was filled with slaughter, and the Jordan River could not be passed over by reason of the dead bodies that were in it. And the lake Asphaltus, which is the Dead Sea down below, was full of dead bodies that were carried down into it by the River Jordan. Well, that's an incredible story. I mean, the truth is stranger than fiction on this one. It's just amazing to read the awful story of how many people lost their lives in just this one battle. Well, Placidus then continued attacking all the villages of Perea, including Abila, Julius, Bezimoth, and others, as far as the Dead Sea, forcing every one of them to either surrender or be destroyed. When some fled on boats into the Dead Sea, Placidus put his soldiers on boats to overtake them and kill them. The whole of Perea, across the Jordan, as far south as Machaerus, was now under the control of the Romans. Here in May of 68, Vespasian had received word that Vindex and other Galatian leaders had revolted. Fearing the situation in Turkey might get out of control and need his help, Vespasian decided to quicken the pace of the war there in Judea. He marched a large part of his army south along the coast through Antipatris, the toparchy of Thamus, Lydda, Jamnia, and 
Emmaus. He took control of all those cities and settled some of the more peaceable Jewish captives in Jamnia. He fortified Emmaus with the 5th Legion and then took the rest of the troops to Bethlehem and some of the other villages of Idumea, such as Betaris and Kafar Tobis, where he killed over 10,000 and captured a 1,000 more. The whole region of Idumea was now under his control. Here in May of 68, Vespasian was then in control of all of Idumea, south of Jerusalem. He was in control of all of Galilee and Perea, and he was now ready to finish uh, some of the other areas there just north of Jerusalem in Samaria uh, that had not been totally swept clean of Zealot rebels. So he returned to his camp in Emmaus to prepare for his assault on Samaria and Jericho. Vespasian pitched camp outside the Samaritan city of Neapolis, which is the And then a couple days later, he marched to Jericho, where the forces under command of Trajan, who's the father of the future emperor by that name, joined him there in Jericho to take that city back under his control. As the Roman army approached Jericho, a great multitude fled out of the city to the hills near Jerusalem. The citizens of Jericho who remained behind were mostly killed, and the city was emptied of its inhabitants. Lucius Annius was then sent to capture Gerasa. In June of 68, Vespasian had now taken control of all the territory of Galilee, Perea, Samaria, the coastal plain, Idumea, and Jericho everything except Jerusalem and the three fortress cities of Masada, Machaerus, and Herodium. He fortified Jericho and Adida and placed garrisons there. Jerusalem was now encircled by Roman camps and cut off from the country outside. Again, there is a map in our lesson outline which shows all these different campaigns of Vespasian around the countryside as he tried to bottle up all the resistance inside Jerusalem. Now here in June of 68, Vespasian was ready to make the move on Jerusalem. While he was still in the process of preparing his troops and his battle strategy in Caesarea for their march to Jerusalem, the news came from Rome that Nero had died. Vespasian immediately suspended all military operations while he awaited more news on who the successor of Nero would be and then get new orders from him. So here in July of 68, when the zealots in Jerusalem heard the news about the death of Nero and they heard about the civil war in Rome and there was rumors of other nations considering revolt, They interpreted all this as a sign from God that the Roman Empire was about to fall and that they, the Zealots, were poised to become the new masters of the world. They believed the prophecy, which Josephus talks about, uh, which was probably from Daniel, which refers to world rulers arising from Judea about this time, was referring to them.
They were certain that God was on their side now and that victory was theirs for the taking. The only thing they were not sure about was which one of the Zealot leaders would end up in the top spot as ruler of the world after the war was over. All three of the factions wanted their leaders to be supreme. Eliezer, Simon, and John of Giscala all wanted that top spot. So while Vespasian was waiting for new orders from Rome, the Zealots fired up their internecine struggles again. Well, Nero died on June the 9th of A.D. 68, and he died childless, last of the Julio-Claudian dynasty to rule over Rome. Octavia had never borne him children. Papea had given birth to a daughter, Claudia, who only lived a few months back in A.D. 63. Two years later, Papea was carrying another child when Nero in a fit of rage, viciously kicked her in the midsection, causing the deaths of both her and her unborn child. Nero had already killed most of the other Julio-Claudian family members, especially those who were in a position to claim the throne. He then proposed marriage to Antonia, the surviving daughter of Claudius, but she wisely refused. Then Nero had her executed on suspicion of conspiracy. Next, he married Statilia Messalina, who came from a very powerful noble family, but she never bore him any children. So Nero left no children or close relatives to perpetuate the Julio-Claudian rule of Rome. This forced the Romans to come up with a new emperor, Three contenders for the throne followed one another in quick succession before Vespasian was finally proclaimed emperor. Galba only reigned for six months and was murdered on January the 15th, A.D. 69. Otho only reigned for three months before he was killed in April of 69. Vitellius's forces took power for a short while, but were challenged and held in check by forces allied with Vespasian. This uncertainty in Rome caused many client nations to consider revolt. It seemed as if the Roman government was falling apart, and the opportunity to be free of the Roman yoke loomed big in their imagination. Vespasian suspended his attack on Judea until the affairs in Rome could be put back under control. The Zealots used this lull in the Roman campaign to raid outside of Jerusalem and gather up food and supplies for their war effort. While Vespasian was waiting for things to settle in Rome, the summer passed into fall and then winter, And finally, in the spring of 69, Vespasian resumed his attack. In June of 68, Agrippa then went to Rome when he heard that Nero was dead. But when Vespasian was proclaimed emperor, Agrippa went back to Palestine to congratulate him and take the oath of allegiance. Agrippa remained in the company of Titus thereafter until the end of the war. After the war, Agrippa went to Rome with Titus. In Rome, after the war, he met up with his old friend Josephus, 
and evidently contributed a lot of details for Josephus to include in his wars and antiquities and life. Here in June of 68, Simon ben Giora had left Masada at the time the Zealots gained control of the city. Upon hearing of the death of Ananus, his old enemy, and the Zealot victory over the forces of Ananus II, he left Masada with his troops and eventually went back to Acrabatine at the south end of the Dead Sea to proclaim liberty to the slaves and rewards for the free. He gained many new followers along the way, including many of the newly released prisoners from Jerusalem. He took control of Acrabatine and many areas of southern Judea. He established his headquarters at Nain and stored up supplies in the caves of Ferrate so that he could eventually attack Jerusalem. In the process of raiding the villages of Judea and gathering supplies, he encountered the Zealot forces from Jerusalem who were also raiding Judean villages to gather supplies. There were clashes between their forces. Simon then tricked the Idumeans into letting him come into Idumea. While there, he seized control of Hebron and raided their villages. Many refugees from Idumea went to Jerusalem as a result. The Zealots kidnapped Simon's wife and took her back to Jerusalem. Simon then marched to Jerusalem and vowed to wreak havoc upon them unless they returned his wife. Evidently, they took his threats very seriously and released her back to him. Well, all that was kind of going on in the background while Vespasian was biding his time waiting for news from Rome with some new orders and information about who the new emperor would be. Here in December of 68, just as winter was about to begin, even after he heard that Galba was the new emperor, Vespasian waited until winter to send any emissaries to Rome to salute Galba. But as the winter was now arriving, he sent Agrippa and Titus by boat to greet Galba and obtain the new orders. So here in the winter, while their ship was en route to Rome along the coast of Greece, Agrippa and Titus got news that Galba had been killed, January the 15th of 69. Agrippa continued on toward Rome, but Titus took another ship back to rejoin his father. Suetonius mentions that Titus stopped in Paphos to consult the oracle of Venus, which assured him of future success. Together in Caesarea again, Vespasian and Titus waited for news about the situation in Rome. Well, after Galba was murdered in Rome, Otho took over control of Rome and ruled for about three months. And during all this time that there was civil war in Rome and these various emperors killing each other off, there were factions going on in Jerusalem where the Zealots were fighting each other and killing each other. The Zealots saw all this confusion and chaos in Rome as a sign from God that victory would be theirs. The Roman emperor Nero was dead. A clear and settled successor was not yet in place. Several western nations of the empire were on the edge of revolt. 
The city of Rome itself was plunged into civil strife. It appeared that their time of freedom and independence had arrived. They thought victory was virtually assured and were already thinking about who would be in control of the new independent Judean state. During the winter and early spring, the Zealot factions in Jerusalem struggled for supremacy against each other. Each of the faction leaders wanted to be on the top when they overthrew the Romans. So they weakened themselves by dividing against each other at the very time when they should have been uniting and preparing for the desperate struggle that was about to come. In April of 69, Otho was killed after reigning only three months. Vitellius took control for a short while, but was challenged and held in check by forces allied with Vespasian, with Domitian, his son, coordinating those forces that had come from the Danube. Well, here in the spring of 69, Vespasian resumed military activities there in Judea, and by June of 69, he had regained control of all of Palestine except Jerusalem and the three Herodian strongholds of Masada, Herodium, and Machaerus. All of the rebels were now bottled up in Jerusalem, or one of those three Herodian fortresses. Soon Vespasian would become emperor. Here in the spring of 69, John of Giscala used the winter to gain control of most of the Zealot forces in Jerusalem and was allied with Eliezer ben Ananias, whose forces controlled the inner temple. John controlled the rest of the city. His soldiers dressed themselves as women and behaved like prostitutes and sodomites. Josephus was enraged at this abomination and violation of biblical law. And of course, uh, if you want to read about how it violated the law, uh, Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, talks about that. It forbids this and calls it an abomination. The zealots proved themselves to be totally lawless. And Josephus, of course, laments the fact that they were causing those abominations to occur there in Jerusalem. Well, here in the spring of 69 also, uh, we can see that lawlessness is increased, just like Matthew 24, verse 12, had predicted. The sad thing about the lawless conduct of those zealots was that it was not just against Roman law, but against God's law and against God's people. The zealot factions and robber bands committed lawless acts of plunder and harassment against their own Jewish people, especially against anyone who would not support the war effort. Josephus says the robbers, Sicarii, zealots, seditious factions, and even high priests kept laws only selectively, if at all. Both civil laws and religious laws were trampled underfoot by the zealots in their attempt to throw off the Roman yoke. And I've got a lot of references here in the lesson outline to antiquities and wars where Josephus talks about all this stuff that was going on inside Jerusalem. Notice what Josephus says here about the lawless conduct of the zealots in subverting their own laws 
in comparison to the Romans who had tried to protect their rights to practice those laws. Notice what he says here in Wars, Book 4, Section 184. Besides, can anyone be afraid of a war abroad, and that with such as will have comparatively much greater moderation than our own people have? For truly, if we may suit our words to the things they represent, it is probable one may hereafter find the Romans to be the supporters of our laws and those within ourselves the subverters of them. Well, the Idumeans who were inside Jerusalem despised John of Gascala and banded together against him and tried to isolate him in the palace and in the outer temple. They seized some of John's supplies, but the rest of the zealots came to the aid of John. So the moderates, under the leadership of the high priest there, Mattathias ben Theophilus, asked Simon ben Giora to come in and save them from John of Giscala. The chief priest, along with Matthias, the high priest, and the powerful moderates, allied themselves with the Idumeans in the attempt to overthrow John. They decided to invite Simon ben Giora into the city to save them from John of Giscala, not realizing that Simon was just as corrupt as John. Matthias was later killed by Simon a year later during the siege. After Simon came into the city, he gained control of the zealot supplies and surrounded John's forces at the temple. But John's forces were able to repulse Simon's forces and retain control of the outer temple area. Eliezer ben Ananias, who was still somewhat allied with John, held the inner temple court where the bulk of the temple treasure was located. This internecine struggle between Simon and John for supremacy only weakened their defenses and fragmented their morale and made it easier for the Romans to conquer them. Well, in June of 69, not long after they had invited Simon ben Giora into the city to save them from John of Giscala, Vespasian recovered Simon's territory that Simon had seized during his raids in Judea and Idumea. Since Simon was now occupied inside Jerusalem, he could not leave and go back out to protect those territories outside the city, so Vespasian easily recovered them. Vespasian continued tightening his grip on all regions outside Jerusalem, forcing all the rebels to flee to Jerusalem. Then here in July of 69, Tiberius Alexander, who was the uh, Roman governor of Egypt, was the first to swear allegiance to Vespasian. The legions in Judea saluted him as Caesar about that same time as well. The legions in Syria and Antioch under Mucianus had also sworn allegiance to Vespasian after they heard about Vitellius plundering Rome with his German mercenaries. And the king of Parthia announced that he would support Vespasian with 40,000 mounted archers. Altogether, 
This meant that Vespasian had almost half of Rome's legions committed to him as their new Caesar. Vespasian held a war council in Beirut with Mucianus, who was the Roman commander at Antioch, along with Agrippa and Titus. It was decided that Titus would resume operations in Judea and try to wrap up the war there as quickly as possible, while Mucianus took his legions toward Rome to engage Vitellius. Vespasian would then go to Alexandria to secure Egypt under his control and use it as a means of starving Rome of its grain supply from Alexandria if it became necessary. Well, here in July of 69, Vespasian was proclaimed emperor by his legions in Caesarea, while Vitellius was still alive on July the 30th of AD 69, a little more than a year after Nero's death. The troops in Alexandria wasted no time declaring Vespasian as emperor soon after they heard about the proclamation in Caesarea. His son Domitian was in Rome at that time and took control of things on his behalf until Vespasian could arrive. Since Josephus' prophecy now had come true, Vespasian freed him to travel with Titus unfettered. They took his chains off and let him travel with Titus. Well, while Mucianus was still on his way toward Rome with his army, Vitellius was killed by the legions of the Danube who had just crushed his troops at Cremona. Vitellius was beheaded and Vespasian officially declared to be emperor by the people of Rome on December the 20th of AD 69. Vespasian was now free then to go to Rome and sit on the throne. Vespasian's son Domitian managed affairs in Rome while Vespasian was on his way. Titus took command of the military forces in Palestine and continued the war, trying to wrap it up as soon as he could. Well, that's about as far as I want to go here with uh, Vespasian's ascension to the throne. After listening to all this, you know, we have to wonder, how in the world can anybody hear all this history about the wars of the Jews with Rome and not be impressed with the sovereign rule of God over all the affairs of mankind. The fingerprints of God are all over this story about the Zealot Rebellion. It has to be the fulfillment of all the things prophesied in the Old Testament prophets. There is no other reasonable explanation for the incredible preservation of Josephus as an eyewitness and then the providential arranging for him to write a history of it. This is not a fairy tale. It is real history, and the story needs to be told. Too many Christians have never even heard of Josephus, and they're almost totally unaware of what really happened in 70 A.D. That has got to change, and these podcasts are pushing in that direction. It is my prayer that the next generation of preterists will make every nook and cranny of Christianity aware of this history. They need to hear it, and I hope we will help them hear it. 
Well, next time we're going to look at more of the details of Vespasian's rise to power and the continuation of military operations in Judea by his son Titus. We'll also look more at what was going on inside Jerusalem among the various zealot factions as they struggled for supremacy over their rivals. That's going to wrap it up for this session. I appreciate you listening, and we'll talk to you next time. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.